0: I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Second Samuel 13 as we pick back up on the passage we began last week. As I mentioned before, preaching through books of the Bible will bring you to difficult texts. Uh, I can't imagine anyone would ever pick Second Samuel 13 at random to preach on. Uh, it was a hard passage we looked at last week, but you're back. So we will continue. Uh, As we now come to the point where really darkness has fallen on the household of David. Uh, Amnon has committed uh, an egregious, wicked sin against Tamar, David's daughter and his own half-sister. And now we see just the continuing ripple effects that really started with David on a rooftop and now has made its way down through his family. And so this whole awful ordeal will just get worse now, as we see uh, God's prophetic word giving to David come to fruition—that the sword will not depart from his house—and we will see how that sword will be used by brother against brother uh, by the end of this chapter. So we're going to look at uh, the remainder of chapter thirteen, verses twenty-three through thirty-nine, and at a reverence for God's word, if you are able, if you'll stand together, as I read today's passage for us. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go out with your servants. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us all not go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose and each mounted his mule and fled. When they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. By the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day He violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said. So it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmay, the son of Amahud, king of Geshir. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. If you would pray with me. Father, it is tempting for us to read a passage like 2 Samuel 13 and see it as far distant dark history that relates very little to us today. And yet, Lord, I believe that this passage relates very much to us today as it looks at how people deal with their shame and their guilt. In this passage, we see how people deal with it the wrong way. Help us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit as we walk through your Word today to see how we might deal with it the right way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. On the grounds of the U.S. Military Academy in West Point, there are plaques. And those plaques commemorate all the generals that served in the American Revolutionary War. But one of those plaques is unique. Because on that plaque, it simply has the rank Major General, and the date, born 1740. But there's no name on that plaque. That plaque is for Benedict Arnold. Now, many of you know that name, but you may not know that he was one of the great heroes of the American Revolutionary War, but his name is absent from that plaque because his name has now become synonymous with shame. His name even means to us today, traitor. Traitor. Because when he was given command of West Point, he he sold out his country. He sold out his position on the promise of riches from the British army. His plans never quite came to fruition. The British never really paid him what they promised to pay him, but he was a traitor nonetheless. He fled to the British side and ultimately he and his family went to England where he died in relative obscurity. Many historians have noted that had Arnold died before that act of betrayal, he would have gone down in history as an American hero. But what we know him for today is simply that he was a traitor and simply that he was covered in shame and he died in that shame. As we come to our text today, we are reminded of another who died in shame. And we come to the reminder here that that Amnon who was next in line to the throne who could have been hailed as a national hero he he followed the lust of his flesh he went down this wicked road of sin his life then was covered in shame and he dies in that shame had he died before that wicked act well he would have had a hero's bur- bur- burial he would have been Remembered as the great prince of Israel. But how we find him dying in this passage is directly a result of his egregious sin against his sister, the hatred of his brother, the sword that the Lord said would come to David's house and would not depart. A sword that brought with it shame. And there's lots of shame in this passage. Really, the very first mention of shame came in our last study when Tamar was pleading with her brother not to violate her and commit this wickedness against her. You may remember that she says to him, where would I go with my shame? Now, of course, her shame was a direct result of the sin of her brother, not her own sin. But we see this introduction of shame from Amnon's great sin. And we see the shame that's already come to the house from David's great sin. And now we see the shame that will come from Absalom and the sin he commits in murdering his brother. And that question that Tamar asks really hangs over this whole passage. Where do we go with our shame? Where would Amnon go with his shame? Where would Absalom go with his shame? Where would David go with his shame? Ultimately, where do we go with ours? Well, that's what I want us to think about as we walk through this passage today. And we'll begin there with Amnon, who shame is what brings about the events that we see here in the remainder of this text. And what we find with him, point one, is this. Uh, Amnon ignores his shame. And he seems to ignore it. After his sin against Tamar, the, the scripture Indicates that he simply went from lusting after her to hating her to discarding her. And then the next thing we see in the text is two years later, where we pick up in verse 23. And we don't know much about what takes place in those two years, but two years later we find Absalom scheming to get Amnon out to where the sheep shearing is taking place. It seems he has had this plan perhaps for some time, about how he would orchestrate the murder of his brother because of the hatred he had in his heart towards him. And so he goes to King David and he makes this request for all the king's sons to come out and for David himself to come out. Now, most agree in studying this passage that he really didn't want David to come. But this was just a scheme. This was just a way for him to get David to sin the prince, to send his son, the next in line, to the throne out with the rest of the king's sons. And that's exactly what happens. And so Amnon goes two years later after that wickedness was committed against his sister Tamar. Now again, we don't really have a lot in the text that tells us about those two years But when I think about Amnon, the passage that comes to mind is what we read in Philippians 3, 19, where Paul is speaking there about those who are enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ, and he says this about them. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And if anyone ever had a mind set on earthly things, whose God was their carnal desires. It was Amnon. His desire was for his sister. And he pursued this wickedness. And then he seems to have relatively no shame, or at least the shame he does have, he ignores it. That there's no indication in the passage that he repented. There's no indication that he felt guilt for what he did. And yet I can't help but wonder how many nights he laid in his bed and he replayed the events and how many times perhaps he he began to feel that that hint of shame that that hint of guilt but it seems whatever shame whatever guilt he felt he completely ignored it In fact that the picture we get of him now two years later is of one who's still indulging himself (laughs) And he goes out with his brother to the sheep shearing. And his brother already knows what he's going to do. And he's going to go out there with them, not so much to help, not even to observe. He's going to get out there and take the opportunity to indulge himself some more. But this time with wine. And so Absalom's plan starts to come to fruition. And he tells his servants that when Amnon is married with wine, not if he gets married with wine, but when it happens because he knows it will, well, that's when they're to kill him. And so the events play out. No evidence of repentance, nothing in the passage about sorrow or remorse from Amnon. He just goes about his days, most likely ignoring the shame that he feels, and ultimately he dies in shame, murdered by his brother. Which brings us then to Absalom's shame, point two. Absalom runs from his shame. After Absalom has Amnon murdered, all the remaining sons of David who are there, they they flee. And you can imagine why. They perhaps think this is some type of run after the throne. Perhaps they think that they're next to die. They don't really wait around to ask questions. They don't even try to attack those who would attack their brother. They just mount their horses and they run. They flee. Now, word comes to David that not, not that they fled, but that they died. And so, there's a miscommunication that takes place here. And so, David is overwhelmed. He believes that, that all of his sons, apart from one, have been killed out there. And he's distraught. But then we read, Jonadab, who you'll remember from our last passage, is listed as one who was very crafty, who was very schemy, who who seems to be trying to orchestrate his place in the king's uh, throne room and and his place in the kingdom. He he comes and tells David uh, that Amnon is the only one that's dead. And then the text follows the, the king's son's return. He says, there, this is what I told you. But notice, twice we're told in this passage. But Absalom fled. Now, The question we might ask this morning is, why did he flee? Why did he run? I don't know about you, but when I first read this text, when I first considered this story, I I don't feel so bad about what Absalom does here. I mean, what Amnon does to Tamar is wicked and evil. And at that point, we considered what needs to happen to him. You remember David's anger towards someone who stole a sheep was that he should die. Well, how much worse consequence should Amnon get for what he did to his sister? And so we, we read about what Absalom does here for many of us. Our hearts kind of go out to him as if what he did was brought some needed justice to the situation. I was reading a news article just the other day about a horrific situation. It was a father whose daughter had experienced just, just utter wickedness and cruelty. And, and And it had happened in her life because of a boyfriend. And so when this father found out about what had happened to his daughter, he tracked down the boyfriend and he brutally murdered him. He stuck him in the trunk of an abandoned car and he just left him there. And a year later, they found that dead man in the trunk. They traced it back to the father and now the father's on trial for murder. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read that article, and as it talked about just the, the brutality that had happened to his daughter, I couldn't help but think about my own children and my own daughters. I started thinking about places on my farm I would bury someone who did something like that. And, and you're nodding because we, we identify with that, don't we? we? We want justice. We want the guilty to be punished. And if someone does something to someone we love, someone we care about, our our heart goes out to that dad for defending his daughter. Our heart kind of goes out to Absalom for what seems to be defending his sister. So why did he run? Well, friends, he ran because he felt guilt and he felt shame. He ran because while we might feel in some sense that what he did was right, God speaks clearly about what he did as being wrong. God says this to us in Romans 12, consider these words, beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep bur- you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now there's two things that are very significant about this passage. The first one is that God makes it clear that vengeance belongs to Him. He says he is the one who will one day bring justice. He is the one who will truly punish the guilty. He says this throughout his word, Proverbs eleven twenty one. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember this. Every time we pick up the paper, every time we turn on the news, every time we look around our own community, and it seems that the wicked... Go unpunished. It seems that the guilty go free. And we have something burning within us that says, that's not right. Because that's not right. But us bringing vengeance doesn't fix it. Vengeance truly belongs to the Lord. And that's the second thing that I want to point out about what we read in Romans 12. Not only that vengeance belongs to the Lord, but that when we try to take vengeance on our own, when we try to avenge ourselves or avenge others, the danger we then run is that we might be overcome by evil. That our desires, whatever they might be, whether there's even righteousness involved in them, the way they will play out will be sinful. And that's what we see happen here with Absalom. His heart was not filled with a pursuit of biblical justice. His desire here was not for righteousness. Now, what we read in the passage multiple times is that he was angry and that his anger was growing a, a bitter root in his heart. And it didn't go away with time. Two years passed by and it seems that throughout those two years he just grew more bitter and more angry And it's the picture of one who's overcome by evil. He ran because he was guilty. He ran because he sought vengeance. He ran because he was overcome by evil. He ran because ultimately he didn't trust in God to avenge what happened to his sister. And so this shame that he felt, this this guilt that he felt, for what he'd done, what led him to flee. The text tells us he fled to Ptolemy, the king of Geshur. And we learned earlier in uh, our study that Ptolemy was Absalom's maternal grandfather. And Geshur was, was outside of King David's jurisdiction. And so this seemed like a good place for him to hide. And that's exactly what he did. He hid from his father, he hid from his father's army. He hid in his shame for three years. Amnon ignored his. Absalom ran from his. And then we come to David, point three. We find that David was overwhelmed by his shame. He was overwhelmed by it. We read here in verse 39, in the very last verse of our chapter, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, the Hebrew in this passage is is very difficult to translate, and so our English translations tend to go one way or another, but but what's actually written here could mean two very different things. Uh, First, what this passage could mean is that David was simply yearning to see Absalom, that he had sort of gotten over the death of Amnon, and now his heart was going out to Absalom. He, he just yearned and longed to, to see him. Or he could be saying that he really didn't want to see him at all. He wasn't yearning to see him at all, but he had simply come to a decision that he wasn't going to take vengeance for Amnon's death that he had come to a point where he decided he wasn't going to avenge the death of his son by striking out against his other son, Absalom. Whatever the case, it's an indication to us that Absalom's going to be returning soon, and that's what will happen. But what we see in either place here is that, that, that David is overwhelmed in one way or another by all that has transpired. And, and you can imagine why. Again, I have no idea how this played out, but I I would imagine, or have imagined, what it would have been like for David. Perhaps to go back to that, that rooftop. You know, that rooftop where he had peered through that window. Perhaps he went up there years later at this point, and he peers back through that window, and just thinks back to that day when he saw Bathsheba bathing there, and he starts to replay over and over in his mind all the events and how they transpired and how he got to where he was. And surely David could see his own sin now being lived out in the lives of his sons. You know, he saw Bathsheba. He wanted her. He took her. Amnon saw Tamar. He he wanted her. He took her. Both men sinned egregiously. And then, as a result of that sin, it led to more sin. David, then in an attempt to cover his sin, has Uriah murdered and killed And no, he has other people do it for him. And what do we see with Absalom? Because of the anger that burns in his heart, because that bitterness that's there, he has his brother Amnon killed, and he too has others do it for him. And perhaps David would stand on that rooftop, and he would just play out in his mind how his sin had affected his family, and how his sons were very much walking in their father's footsteps and I wonder if David in that moment just felt great shame shame not only for his sin and what he had done but shame for how he had dealt with these other sins that when his daughter Tamar was violated he, he was angry but he didn't do anything and that when his son kills his other son well he runs and hides but again there's there's no indication here that he really does anything And it would just seem that at this moment that that he's just overwhelmed by that sense of shame. Not exactly examples for us to follow here. But they are examples for us to learn from. Because as we consider the shame of Amnon and Absalom and David, we can't help but go back to Tamar's question and consider in our own lives, where do we go with our shame? How do we deal with our shame? And that's where we'll conclude our study today in point four. How do we deal with our shame? I'll remind you what we read about the Old Testament in the New Testament in Romans fifteen four. For For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might find hope. And what that passage is saying is that everything recorded in the Old Testament is there, that we might learn from it, that we might be encouraged by it, that we might learn to endure and to have hope. So, so what do we learn from this passage? What do we learn from the shame of these men? Well, we learn, first of all, that we too have shame. Romans 3.23 tells us all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, thanks be to God that I hope none of us have committed anything close to the wickedness that we see here in 2 Samuel 13. But friends, make no mistake about it. We have all sinned nonetheless. And we, like Amnon and Absalom and David, what we, in our sin, we fall short of the glory of God. We all have shame. Every one of you in this room, you, you, you don't need me to give you a lesson on shame. You know what shame is. Perhaps some of you feel shame right, right now as you think about something you've done, something you've thought, something you're involved in even now. Perhaps even now the Holy Spirit is bringing that burden on your mind and heart that you should feel shame. And that you shouldn't ignore it like Amnon. And that you shouldn't run from it like Absalom. And that you need not simply be overwhelmed by it like David. But that there's a better way. 300 years after Tamar asked that question, God answers it through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah would write this. In Isaiah 25, 8. Speaking of the coming of our Lord Jesus... He said, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from our faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That word reproach in the Hebrew is the same exact word that Tamar uses for shame. She says, Who will take away my shame and reproach? And 300 years later, God says through the prophet Isaiah, Jesus will. He's the one who will take our shame away. And how does he do it? Isaiah goes on to write in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, our, our shame. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Friends, what we see here in this thread that runs from beginning to end in the Scripture is that the shame of 2 Samuel 13 is taken to the cross by our Lord Jesus. And the shame of our sin was taken to the cross by our Lord Jesus. And in the midst of a great darkness in 2 Samuel 13, we see in the big picture a great light. And that light has come so that we might rightly deal with our shame. Not by ignoring it, not by running from it, not by meeting the burden of it, but by repenting and trusting in Jesus. And by experiencing what it means to have that shame lifted off of us and that burden lifted. But friends, that doesn't happen by just simply trying harder. That doesn't happen by seeking to be more religious that that doesn't happen by making vows and seeking to keep them. That only happens if you will confess Jesus as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved and your shame will be lifted. That only happens when we come to the cross of Jesus. So my plea with you this morning is this. Don't run from your shame. Don't ignore your shame. And you need not stay under the burden of it. Bring your shame to Christ. Know what it means to be saved. Experience the power of the gospel. If you would stand with me and pray to that end. Father God, I do ask that you might help us to rightly deal with our shame. That You tell us in your word that we've all sinned and fall short of your glory. And we can see that, Lord. And we can see the many ways that we try to cover our own shame and deal with our own shame, and yet none are sufficient. We need to trust in Jesus. We need to carry our shame to the cross, and I pray we will. I pray for each of us this morning during this time of imitation that you, through the power of your spirit, would bring conviction to our hearts, that you might help us to recognize sin in our life, that we would rightly repent of it and that we would experience the cleansing work of the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, as we respond now to God's word and lift our voices and sing about what a Savior we have in Christ, we do invite you uh, to come as God leads, if he's leading you to come and respond to the gospel this morning uh, to profess Christ as your Lord. Uh, to follow through in obedience and believers' baptism, to start the process of joining this church family, or if you just need someone to, to pray with you, I'd be honored to do that. Others will be as well. So we invite you to sing, to respond, and to come as the Lord leads.